Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you. I was out of town last week, so if you're here last week and you didn't see me, that was unusual, but I'm normally here, I promise, but I'm glad to be back again here with you today. I have a picture for you. I want you to look at it today and tell me if you know why this picture is significant. Kurt, if you want to put it up. Anybody know why this image is significant? Obviously, the Pope is in the white. I know you know who the Pope is, but you know who the guy holding the umbrella is? The Pope's butler, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice uh, to have a, have a butler? The Pope's butler, and he's in trouble this week, or at least there's allegations against him. Apparently, and I haven't been following this, there's been a series of leaks from the Vatican about internal memos, some sort of uh, power struggle, seems right out of a Dan Brown novel. And the police have ultimately said they think that the butler is the source of these secret leaks. The butler is, you know, with the Pope all the time in the papal chambers there in the Vatican. He lives, in fact, in the Vatican City, and so he would have access to lots of different insider information. And the allegations against him are that he's been leaking this information to a journalist who's been writing about it. I want to talk today, actually, about insider information. I want to talk about what it's like to have access to inside information, what that would mean for you. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus says, the knowledge, let me get this exactly right. He says in Matthew 13, 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. And them are the non-believers, the Gentiles. The knowledge of the secrets, or the mysteries, as it says in term translations, has been given to you. Jesus says, listen, I'm revealing some insider information to you. Now, you may not be a believer here this morning, and so this may not mean anything to you, but to me, and I, I believe what the church says about Jesus, that he is uh, the only begotten of the Father. God himself has uh, unique insight into the world. It says in John's Gospel that all the world was made through the Spirit of Christ. So if Jesus says, I have insider information to share with you, for me, from my point of view as a believer, I would say it's worth listening to. And some of you here today would agree with me. But even if you're here today and, and you maybe aren't a believer or, or not exactly sure what you believe about Jesus, I'd like to suggest that I want you to hear out what we have to say this morning because I think the insider information that Jesus is going to share is actually information that rings our bells in a certain way. It's inf ins information about what the universe is really like. And so for the next four weeks, we'll be working through a sermon series we're calling Revealed. The idea that Jesus is revealing certain information to us and they all, the uh, little tidbits of information I'm going to talk about come out of Matthew chapter 13, a fantastic a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, in which Jesus tells these really powerful parables. You know, parables are like, um, well, they're almost not like anything else. They're like little word pictures, but they're not like Aesop's fables word pictures that always have a simple point, like a moral of the story. The parables of Jesus are, most, are meant to unsettle us. If we look carefully enough, every parable of Jesus has some sort of off-putting quality, something that should make us think, am I hearing that correctly? And the parables of Jesus also are endlessly fascinating. You can hear them preached on forever and never get tired of it because they're like diamonds. They have all these different facets. So we'll be looking at the different parables of Jesus and looking at the information that he's giving to the insiders. But today, I want to talk about two very small, seemingly simple parables. On Friday evening, I was with uh, some friends of ours. Out there. We had them over for dinner. And we got talking at the end of the evening about... Uh, the wife of our friends, she's a school teacher at a district nearby, and she talked about how there was a little kid in her class who teaches seventh grade who has to come to school with his clothes safety pinned together because he doesn't have anything else to wear. 
It's all that he has to wear. And you can imagine when you're in the seventh grade and you're the kid coming to school with your clothes safety pinned together, what that's like, how difficult that would be. And we just got into the topic of poverty and particularly in our education systems. And so we all know the really poor record that the Dallas ISD has and some of the other area schools about educating our kids and teen pregnancy and dropouts. And it's overwhelming when you think about all the problems. And I like to read about the news and look at stuff on television and look up headlines on the internet. And it doesn't matter where you look in the world, there seems to be overwhelming problems. Would you agree with me? I mean, you, you start reading anything about Afghanistan, you think, how is this going to work out? Or about Israel and Palestine. Or about the, the energy crisis in the world and about how we're, there's a growing nations competing for a restricted number of uh, resources. Or even here closer to home, when you read about the drug violence in Mexico and how we, north of the border, are funding murder and terrorism and extortion south of the border, it's, it's, it's crippling. You think, how can we do anything about it? Every week through this church, we have folks coming here who, who need money, they need help, all sorts of problems, health care issues. Just the problems in the world seem daunting. And those are just kind of the headline issues that are outside. What about in your own families? And in your own circles of acquaintances, perhaps you're, you're, you have people in your family and you, you hear about their stories and you think, I, I don't know how they can get out of that problem. I don't know how that, how that marriage can be reconciled. I don't know how there can be forgiveness there. Or maybe that's your story today. Maybe you're in a position and you just feel like, I don't know how anything good can come out where I am today. I want to talk to that subject today. I want to talk about when things seem inevitably bad or, or the, the, the problems arrayed against us just seem insurmountable. And there are two very simple parables Jesus tells here in Matthew chapter 13. Both of them are relatively famous, one more so than the other. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. And he goes on. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed, and in fact, uh, a better translation in and literally in Greek it says took and hid. Yeast that a woman took and hid into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And the number for the large amount is uh, like 50 gallons of flour. It's a lot. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid into 50 gallons of flour until it worked all through the dough. Let's pray. God, add your richest blessing to the hearing and preaching of this word. Take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. And take our hearts, Lord, and set them afire for you and for your kingdom. Amen. Okay, so very simply, Jesus is making an analogy. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like Y. Kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, very small seed. But when it grows, it grows into a really big plant uh, that almost is like a tree that birds can nest in its branches. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took some yeast and hid it in a big batch of flour, and then after a while it leavened the whole batch. 
So the question is, what is Jesus trying to tell us with these simple analogies? Let's just talk, let's start in the most obvious and work our way into the more surprising. Most obviously, there's something about the kingdom of heaven, and in other gospels, the phrase might be the kingdom of God. This is a quick aside, but one of the reasons Bible scholars think Matthew was written to Jewish folks is because uh, observant Jews back in the days of Jesus didn't like to say the name of God. Maybe you've heard that. And so Matthew doesn't write the kingdom of God, he writes the kingdom of heaven as, a, as like a substitute for the word of God. So the kingdom of heaven is like a small thing that becomes large. I have a picture of a mustard seed. It's a very small seed, it, you can see it on the, somebody's thumb. You know, just a, a small seed, like a, I don't know, like a little poppy seed or raspberry seed or something like that. It's a very small seed. And this is what it grows into, this next picture is from the Middle East. Yeah, like a big plant, uh, almost like Jesus, in fact, calls it a tree. So obviously, the kingdom of heaven, there's something about it that it starts small or insignificant and grows big. What might that mean for you and me? Well, first of all, I think we can see some evidence of what Jesus talked about. We're still reading today and worshiping today about something that happened 2,000 years ago in an out-of-the-way corner of Palestine. You know, this year, we'll spend, uh, what, over a billion dollars on our presidential election. And it, we as Americans tend to always think, and other people in other parts of the world do this too, that if we're going to get the future right, we're going to have to have the right people in office. And if you're of one political persuasion or another, or even if you're an independent, or if you're apolitical, you think, yeah, well, if we could just get the political system right, well, then everything else will work out. I think voting is important. I appreciate Leon's prayer about being grateful for where we live. But I have to be honest with you. I don't think the votes we make are going to actually bring about the kingdom in a specific way. I think God is doing something different. Why would God choose a Jewish carpenter to reveal the truths about the world? And why would that carpenter gather around him a bunch of uneducated, illiterate fishermen in a time of the world when there was no social media, no broadcast television? And why would they not choose to become armies or political powers, but why would they work through the church, through the bottom things? Why would they work like that unless there's something about that's how God is actually working in the world? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows into a really big bush, or it's like some yeast that's hidden in a batch of flour and it leavens the whole bunch. There's something about what God is doing in the world that's about the small things that are going to become big. We are here today because of the faithfulness of the people who have come before us in the church. Because Jesus first preached to his disciples and because they first at Pentecost spread the gospel to different sorts of people and because those missionaries carried it to all over the world. You know, there are Christians today who have all different sorts of skin tones and speak all different sorts of languages and live in all different sorts of cultures. The church is not supposed to be tied to any one particular culture or sort of people or people group or language. It's God's church, and it's worked through all parts of the globe. You know, there used to be, in the beginning of uh, the church and in the time of Jesus and in the first century, it used to be the case that women were treated sort of like um, less than human, almost subhuman people. Now, of course, in our culture, we still have issues about uh, relationships between men and women, and we have a long way to go, perhaps. But, you know, in the ancient world, in Rome, it would be the case, as it is in some parts of the world today, that if a girl baby was born, sometimes they would just say, Let her, leave her out on the hillside to die. Because we don't want a girl baby, we want, a, we want a, a male child. 
And through the influence of the church, after a while, in, in the Roman Empire and in Western Europe, that became to be abhorrent. Because over time, the gospel was working and the, the kingdom of God was working and change happened. You know, several hundred years ago, it had seemed inconceivable that American slavery would ever not be part of the, our country. It would seem impossible. But a few people said, no, this is wrong, and God began to work over time. And now it seems to us almost inconceivable that, it ever, that something so evil and so obviously contrary to both the spirit of God and to the spirit of our nation could have ever have happened. Because God's at work. And I just wonder today, what are the small parts of your life that perhaps God is going to work to bring something great out of it? Maybe today you just have a little bit of faith. You know, you're in church, but the church thing is just overwhelming to you. You don't understand uh, everything that I'm talking about today. You don't know a whole lot about the Bible. Some of the bigger claims of the faith about the resurrection of the Trinity seem impossible for you. Can I just give you a word of encouragement today? Jesus doesn't say you have to have all kinds of faith and, and do about it yourself. In another place, he compares faith to the size of a mustard seed. Maybe today you have the faith that you need. And God will be faithful to you and bring it to completion. This is why, in fact, it's not enough, and I'm not knocking this, but it's not enough at a religious meeting, at a worship service, just to give your life to Christ. It's not enough just to say a sinner's prayer and accept Christ as your Savior. Because the work of the kingdom is about bringing something out of something small. You can't be whom God needs you to be just after saying one prayer. That's just the beginning. And I'd say that as a word of encouragement to you. I'd like to say that if you, as I talked about a few weeks ago, are abiding in Christ, if you're attending worship regularly, even if you don't understand it, if you're reading your Bible, even if you don't understand it, if you're trying to give, even though giving is difficult for you, if you're trying to serve, even though you don't always have joy in your heart when you show up to serve, I believe that God is going to use those things to bring something great out of it. Perhaps you know some old people in, in your life, and I can think of my grandfather. And when he died, he was a holy man. He was somebody who just seemed to be filled with the love of God. And of course, I didn't know him when he was born or a little boy. But I think his life was a testimony to how the kingdom is like a small mustard seed. But it grows and becomes something larger. I wonder today if, if you can just be encouraged at whatever situation you're in or whatever problems you see in the world that God can take small things and bring them out of something large. One of the problems that I see in the world is the fact that the gospel solution, the, the words about Jesus, the message about the kingdom is not seen by most people, at least in the Western world, as being a credible solution to the problems that we have. I came across this in a magazine this week. This is talking about France. If you know anything about France, you know that France is one of the most secular countries in Europe. You know, of course, they have these incredible cathedrals and works of art, but less than, I think, 3% of the population even attend worship on a regular basis. This guy was a missionary in France. This is what he says. In Western Europe, I think it's fair to say the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God is not considered to be a credible solution to the problems facing modern nations. In Western Europe, I think it's fair to say that the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God is not considered to be a credible solution to the problems facing modern nations. In other words, to an increasing number of people in Western culture, and it's true in this country, although not as true as it is in Western Europe, talking about Jesus seems crazy. It seems like you're just on another planet. With the problems that we have with terrorism and hunger and failing schools, and you're talking about Jesus, what a waste of time. 
Perhaps you know people in your life who would say that to you, or perhaps you're here this morning and that's what you would say. And I see that, and sometimes it can become discouraging to think, man, how is the church going to keep prevailing in a culture that's becoming increasingly giving over to secular lives? But then I think, of course, how did they begin? It wasn't obvious in the year 33 AD that the message about Jesus was going to take over the Roman Empire and explode into all parts of the world. The Romans thought they were crazy, and, and the, as Paul says, the, the Greeks thought it was uh, foolishness, and the, the Jews thought it was a stumbling block. Regardless of what culture you came from, it seemed crazy to talk about a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And I wonder if sometimes as the church, we just need to be more bold, not that we're going to make great things happen, but that God is going to use simple people like you and me who don't have all the answers, who don't always have the right word in every situation, but God is going to use people like you and me in the church even in places like secular France or 2012 Dallas. God is at work. The kingdom is like a small seed that grows into something large. But there's something else that we take a little deeper into this parable that I find very powerful. It's that the seed, I know this is obvious, the seed and the future plant are connected. You see that there's a relationship between the beginnings and the end. What this means to me is that the means and the end have to be the same. In fact, hear me out here, this might seem crazy. In God's world, in the kingdom of God, the means sort of are the end. The means are a foretaste of the end. Here's what I mean. You can't now, if you don't have any money or if you're in financial difficulty, say, when I start making money, or when I become wealthy, that's when I'm going to start becoming generous. See, I'm going to be greedy up to a point, and then when I become wealthy, then I'll be generous. You, you follow that, that logic? Or you can't say if you're a single person today, when I find my spouse, I'm going to be committed to him or her. I'll be faithful. But right now, as a single person, I don't need to exercise any kind of discipline or chastity in my life or faithfulness because I'm not yet married, and when I get there, I will be. I would say that's a, that's a lie, that's false. See, according to the image of Jesus, the beginning and the end are connected, the means and the end, the way a small seed gives birth to a greater plant. If we want to be a church that matters in East Dallas, we have to do it now when we don't have a whole lot of influence or a whole lot of money, when there's not very many of us. We have to start working in faithful ways now, trusting that God will use them in greater ways later. This fall, we're going to be start uh, doing a mentoring program at Robert E. Lee Elementary. I'm really excited about it. If you haven't heard more about it, I'd love to talk to you about it after the service. We're particularly looking for guys to step up. It's one mentor, one kid, one hour a week. It's awesome. I'm really pleased about it. But we're going to start small. We're going to start with 20 mentors out of hundreds of students, out of one elementary school in the whole city. This is small. But the means and the ends are connected. So we start now being faithful in a small way and we trust that God can use it in some greater way in the future. I wonder today if in your place of work you can get discouraged about what it's like to be a person of faith because you're there and no one else shares your values, no one's else trying to even be faithful. You're trying to have integrity in how you uh, go about doing some deals and how you interact with your clients and your vendors, but nobody else is being faithful or trying to have integrity. Can I just give you an encouragement and say you need to be faithful in the small things? Because the means and the end are connected. You can't say, you know, one day when I have influence or I'm the boss or I'm the CEO, then this will be a place of integrity. You need to start having integrity now and let God use it.
And it doesn't always seem obvious. Most things that grow in the ground take time. You can look at it from one day to the next and it might not seem like anything has happened, but trust that the seed is growing. In the same way in your office or perhaps in your family, if you become faithful now and you start showing love to an estranged uh, sibling or a fam- uh, parent now, or if you start living in a certain way in your neighborhood now, or working in a certain way in your office, you can just trust God I'm just trying to be faithful. Use me the way you use seeds to bring out something bigger. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a, it's like a seed that grows into a bigger plant. And then there's that other image. He says, you know, the kingdom of God is like a woman who hides yeast in a big batch of flour. I love that image too because it says to me that you can't always see what's happening while it's happening, but after all, you'll look back and see that the yeast has leavened the whole batch. Maybe that's one of the things that we could be considering to be about as a church. We want to be yeast for the city of Dallas. We want to be the leaven that raises the whole batch. It doesn't take a whole lot of leaven to raise the whole bit of dough. It doesn't take everyone in the city to be a faithful Christian, to change the fabric of the city, to change the marriages and the schools of the city. Can I just give us a word of encouragement to say if we just are who we are now, and we live faithful now, God will bring something cool out of it because the means are connected to the end. There was a Methodist conference a few weeks ago. This is a Methodist church and there was the big international conference where they get together and argue about all kinds of stuff. And it was, I think for a lot of people who were there, a pretty depressing environment, in fact. And as an example, they were discussing the Israel-Palestine issue. And yet some people saying, we need to stand up to oppression. And some people saying, we need to stand up to terrorism. And you can see how these two sides are just talking right at, right at each other. And a woman, an international delegate from somewhere in Russia, got up to the microphone and said, well, why are we arguing about this? Why don't we just send missionaries there and let God work through them and bring about peace the other way? If he's the prince of peace, can't he bring about peace? And of course, at a big church meeting like that with all the acrimony, nobody listened to her and they went on about their business. But I was reading an essay online that said, you know, in fact, maybe what she had to offer was the most powerful solution there was. Just work like leaven and let it work through the whole loaf. And that may sound crazy, just as it sounded crazy to the early disciples when Jesus says, listen, start small and I'm going to bring something big out of it. But that's how God works. What big things might God want to be bringing out of your life through your small acts of faithfulness today? Now I mentioned that all parables that Jesus tells have something pretty strange in them. And if you read it too quickly, you're going to miss the strange off-putting details. But I want to pull our attention back to it. Jesus says, let's, let's look at it very closely. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. And becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. That sounds nice, right? A small seed becomes something large. And again, here's the picture of the mustard seed, really small. And then here's a picture of what the mustard plant looks like. Now, that is impressive, okay? We would agree with that. Small thing comes to something large. But if you are making a point about something small becoming something large, is that the image that you would use? The mustard seed in the ancient, the mustard plant in the ancient world was almost sort of a, a weed. In fact, there was rabbinical laws about where and where, uh, where and why you could plant it. So yeah, it's impressive, but it's not that impressive. 
To me, it's like if Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a small crepe myrtle seed. And one day it grows into a crepe myrtle tree that's eight feet tall. Well, okay, I like crepe myrtles. We have a beautiful one outside here, but I mean, come on, a crepe myrtle tree? Haven't you ever seen any more important trees? In fact, in the ancient world, there was a part of the country that was famous for big trees, and they were called cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. They're often referred to in the Bible. Here's a picture of a cedar tree. Now, that's an impressive tree, right? Why didn't Jesus say the kingdom of God is like a cedar seed, and it starts small, but over hundreds of years, it's the mightiest of all trees? The kingdom of God is like a crepe myrtle tree, Jesus says, and it becomes okay as a tree. It's eight feet tall. You know, if in an American context, the kingdom of God is like a great oak tree or redwood or sequoia or something impressive. Now, I believe that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived who know more about the universe as we've been talking than anyone else. So he's revealing something powerful to us in the images that he chose. Don't believe that this is an accidental image. He's making a point. What might that point be? Can I ask you another question? Are there any other times in scripture where somebody uses a tree in an odd way? The image of a tree in an odd way. Of course, in Galatians, Paul talks about someone crucified upon a tree. By the tree, we, we talk about a tree and we really mean the cross. I wonder if Jesus is saying, you know, the kingdom of God is going to come about in a surprising way, in a scandalous way in a way that's unlooked for and unexpected. Because after all, it is the cross that's the central symbol of the faith, and it is the cross to which Jesus is going when he's speaking here. And it is a sign of the cross about the power of God to raise even the crucified one. And the early Christians didn't say, listen, our God is so strong, he's going to defeat Rome because our God is stronger. They said, our God is so strong, he's going to defeat Rome because he has power even to use the ugly things of the world for his glory. In fact, in fact the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world to shame the mighty, the foolish things to shame the wise. See, this kingdom business, this is not about the way you and I would think. It's a new way of thinking. That's why Paul says in a different place in Romans 12, he says, don't be conformed to how the world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I'm wondering today if you and I are seeing the world in the wrong way. I wonder if you and I are buying into the lies that it's the mighty things that are going to make the world change and not the meek. That it's the wealthy things that are going to change the world and not the impoverished. I wonder if as a church, are we believing the right things about what faithfulness to Christ looks like? I hope this church is overflowing with people. I hope we have tons of kids you know we've been in a campaign to raise money for a building. I hope that we bust through our target. I'm excited about those things, but I wonder sometimes if those standards are just worldly standards. And what God is calling us to is small acts of, of faithfulness, of revolutionary disobedience, the way we treat the poor among us, the way we treat the ones who are most, the ones who are greatest offenders against God, the way we show love and grace towards them. I wonder if, if we are most faithful, not when we do something great that everybody knows about, but we do something small. When we just pray for our family day after day and it seems to be a bear no fruit, I wonder if that's what it's most like to live within the kingdom. Nine years ago, I got this t-shirt. It was from my old church. I used to work as a youth director at a church. And you can't see it. It says, Mustard Seed Revolution. 
We were trying to come up with a name for our little youth program. And this kid in the church said, we should call it Mustard Seed Revolution. And so that's what we have on our shirt. And we have a little image of a seed. I want to call you today to join the Mustard Seed Revolution. The small acts of revolutionary obedience to Christ and disobedience to the world that changes everything. In the same way that God could use a crucified Messiah to bring about the good news the world needs to hear, to bring about the inevitable conclusion of history where God is going to make all things right, at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. I wonder if you want to join that revolutionary movement today. Here's the good news. You don't have to have a lot of faith, just a little bit like a mustard seed. You don't have to look impressive. You don't have to be a cedar or a redwood tree. You can be just a myrtle, a crepe myrtle tree or a mustard plant in the kingdom. And God uses it for powerful ways. This revolutionary movement accepts all comers. You don't have to know everything or believe everything or be perfect. In fact, God does his most work through imperfect people as he perfects them through love. And I'd like to call you today to join that mustard seed revolution. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.